Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In 2010, Kevin Seistrom and Mike Krieger released a photo sharing app called Instagram with an irresistible feature. It can make all of your photographs look more beautiful. Within two years, Instagram had so many users that Facebook bought the company for an historic $1 billion. Sarah Fryer, a reporter on social media companies for Bloomberg News, discusses Instagram as a successful business with a billion users, as a social phenomenon that has changed the way we look at the world, and also analyzes what we consider aesthetically pleasing in her book called No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. It's published by Simon & Schuster and brings Sarah Fryer to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Aren't you the recipient of the prestigious Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award for for 2010? Uh, The youngest ever to win it? Congratulations. Thank you so much. (laughs) Good of you to mention. Yes, that is crazy that uh, the first book I've written has received that award. But I think it does does to show the, the... prominence of Instagram in our daily lives and in our, in our economy and in how we think about ourselves and in Facebook's business trajectory. It really has this profound impact on our world. And I think that the, the award recognizes that. How difficult was it to uh, cover the story? Did it keep on changing as you were writing the book? It's so interesting. So I, pitched the book in August of 2018, and I wasn't sure what kind of story it would be, whether it would be, you know, a story of the future of Facebook, this this victory that they accomplished by acquiring Instagram, or whether it would be um, something a little bit more dramatic. And the latter turned out to be true, because a a few months into my reporting, the founders left Mm. Facebook in, in a clash with CEO Mark Zuckerberg, and all of these internal conflict started to reveal themselves to me. And, um, and and it was so clear that this, this power struggle between these two men um, and the impact that it had on, on us and the product we use um, was a, maybe a more interesting story than I had set out to write. Didn't most of the people you interviewed only agree to speak to you anonymously? What reasons did they give? Well, Facebook, was it NDAs? Very strong, very strong uh, requirements for NDAs. Basically, if you walk into the building, you have to sign an NDA. That's how that's how it works, um, unless you're a journalist, of course. And and the people who are in this industry, this is also it's such a tight knit world. Um, if you if you grow up at one of these companies, you are told that speaking to the media is something that that hurts your corporate family. Um, and so a lot of people had the sense that if they, if they, people found out that they were speaking to me, that they would lose their entire um, livelihood. However, uh, a lot of people felt that it was still very important to tell this story because this is something that, um, you know, the, the, the company line was essentially that uh, Instagram was a harmonious um independent company within Facebook. And the reality was a lot more complicated and people wanted to make sure that the truth was out there, which, um, you know, led to a lot of anonymous conversations, but also a lot of on the record conversations in in order to not reveal uh, who was 
a source and who is not. I wrote the whole book in a cinematic style. So when you read it, you really feel like you're in the room. You feel like uh-huh. you're you're in these moments with, with the, these leaders as they're making a decision. Uh, did Mark Zuckerberg agree to talk to you? Mark did not. He sent me a statement um, basically answering one of my many questions in a very crisp way, which is that he bought Instagram because he thought, that it had the potential to grow under Facebook. And and that is really what Facebook's all about is growth. Um, they want to make sure that, that they capture every moment they possibly can of your attention and they make themselves essential to you. And so that was, a, in a way, it was, it was a short quote, but it was very revealing. I, I've spoken with Zuckerberg many times in the past. I've, I've watched him testify in congressional hearings. I've, I've um, you know, been a very close observer of, of him over the last eight years. Um, but in this story, I mean, you you will see if you read the book, it, it's quite emotional for him. Um, and I think that it just wasn't something that he wanted to put a stamp on. A reviewer in the New York Times suggested that he might be the villain of the story. Uh, now, he tried to recruit Kevin Seistrom. Is it Seistrom? Seistrom. Systrom. He tried to recruit Kevin Systrom to come to work at Facebook in 2004, and Systrom turned him down. Why? Systrom got advice that Facebook maybe wasn't going to be much of anything, and he heeded that. And he thought, well, maybe I should just, you know, keep keep trying to make something of myself. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is about the same age as as Kevin Systrom, and um, he was thinking, well. You know, anyone, if he can do it, anyone can do it. And, and he actually, it was interesting, in, his, in the early days of, of his career, uh, after graduating from Stanford, he goes to work for Odeo as an intern, which, which ends up becoming Twitter. And he goes to work for Google. And then he goes to work for a startup. And he learns that the people behind these businesses are just as human and vulnerable as I am. And there's not really a secret sauce. It's just somebody who has a good idea and makes it happen. And so I think that that was, that was empowering um, to have had that exposure in those relationships and think, okay, I, I can come up with something on my own and maybe it'll work. Systrom creates an app called Bourbon after his favorite drink. Uh, and it is uh, intended to combine location-based social networking with photo sharing. Um, did he get anybody interested? Did he get venture capitalists to invest? Well, he did. However, um, he didn't really believe in the product after a while. He thought that uh, the people who were using it were kind of using it out of obligation to to him and his co-founder, Um some people were really into it, but he didn't see it as a thing that would go quite mainstream. He needed to simplify it. And, and that's really where we get to Instagram. Instagram was designed perfectly for mobile phones because all it was was a, a photo, just posting a photo. It had those filters that would automatically turn your life moments into nostalgic memories and make you feel a little bit better about about what you've done um, and make it feel like you were surrounded by art and creativity. And, and that really resonated with people. It wasn't so much about the technical functionality. It was about the opportunity to present one's life in a certain way. 
and it just it just exploded. It was just once Instagram launched, it rose to the top of the Apple App Store immediately and um, started to just become a phenomenon. Well, it did improve the look of uh, the blurry or bad photos that you tended to get on your phone. Now, he uh, he started working with a fellow Stanford graduate, Mike Krieger, and they brought different skills to the partnership. Uh uh, but w- was that a happy partnership? Was that a good relationship because they didn't have equal shares? Well, it was one of the best I've ever heard of in in technology. I mean, you know, Kevin Systrom had seen the Twitter founders at each other's throats. He'd seen the, you know, legal disputes between Facebook founders. Right now we only think of Mark Zuckerberg, but there was a, a big lawsuit by Eduardo Saverin over compensation and and he really when he found Mike Krieger he was willing to wait months for Krieger to get his his work visa because he he said this is going to be a really important decision for me and I actually like working with this guy he's he's a friend to me and and they just had this this complementary skill set where Kevin Systrom liked to be the the outgoing um you know product visionary who would would speak to investors, et cetera. And, and Mike Krieger was the technical guy. He had all of the, the skills for the back end of the product and didn't really want to be in the spotlight. And they dovetailed really well together. How did they come They're up with the name Instagram? Day. Instant Telegram. So oh. it was just a, a portmanteau of those two words. Um, and and it had it has a little bit of a hipster connotation, you know, the like telegrams are obviously not in use, but um, something that was just a little snapshot of what you were doing, a little message. And within its first year, it attracted seven million hu- users. So that's a, an immediate success. Um, Rather than pleasing themselves, didn't many users of Instagram begin to post photos that others might like? Well, so it was this platform where you could demonstrate how beautiful and interesting your life was. And the way Instagram worked is there was no resharing of content. So everything that you posted was a representation of how you saw the world, which ultimately made it this destination for personal branding. Um, but at the time was, was more of a place where you, you could, you could follow somebody because they had an interesting perspective. Um, they had a, a certain photography style, sorry, a certain photography style or an interest in fashion or really enjoyed, you know, making latte art or whatever it might be. You could follow somebody and get that insight into what they did. And that was really interesting and different than what you would find on other social platforms where people were sharing a lot of content, you know, links outside, um, content that other people had created. On Instagram, it was, it was just this pure representation of what you saw. In, in time, didn't people change their behavior? Uh, they identified places and things that looked good on Instagram, and uh, they started uh, posting uh uh, colorful foods, uh, and uh, I guess influencing uh, the way things people thought things should look in their quest to look modern. Didn't many hotels and restaurants end up looking very much the same because 
Instagram has influenced aesthetics and design without uh, it being its original intention. What's interesting about it is Instagram, unlike some of the other social platforms, it's not just about what has happened to our culture on the app, not just about our scrolling and what we click on, but what we choose to do in the real world. And the rewards of Instagram, the followers, the comments, the likes, with every post we are sort of trained on what works and what doesn't. And we all become these these people who have this awareness of, of how visual branding is supposed to work online. And we go and seek out those experiences that are visually appealing um, on our vacations, at our weddings, um, when we celebrate, when we're out with friends, um, picking restaurants. And then, of course, the economy must respond to that. So restaurants realize that they can charge more for food that is plated beautifully. Um, hotels can can build um, ways to, to take more beautiful photos, um, improve their photography for their marketing. And so all of these things start to trickle into our economy. And now if you want to start a business, any sort of visual business, if you want to be a baker or you want to be um, you know, a ballet dancer, you have to have a, a following on Instagram. That's where people find your talent and start to to make you into a success. And it's just really changed the way the world works. You open your book with a story about your visit to an alley in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Dozens of tourists line up to take their pictures in front of a mural of Pelé. Uh, without Instagram, would this alley have become one of Sao Paulo's top tourist uh, destinations? No, I, I don't think so. And, and when people go and travel places, they are Googling, you know, top Instagramable spots in Sao Paulo and New York and Paris. I mean, everyone wants to go to the places that will be memorable and demonstrate told, that they're like having a great Tunga time in, for their friends. In Norway. Yeah, Tunga, exactly. In but, Norway. It's a it's a, a cliff in Norway, and so, uh, it increased from a few hundred people a year to tens of thousands visiting it because it began to be featured on on Instagram. Now, but it also didn't Instagram encourage celebrities to share the behind the scenes details of their lives, not just to promote their upcoming albums and movies. Instagram had very hands-on training with celebrities and influencers. And in fact, I would say uh, was instrumental in figuring out who would become famous and who would, who would do a good job, um, helping people curate their content, come up with campaigns and in a way that shaped our culture. And one thing about um, celebrities that I found fascinating, uh, the actor Ashton Kutcher told me that it used to be that, uh, actors thought that if they were to share on the internet about their private lives, that people would stop to see them in their character roles, that they would become less famous as a result, um, and it would be bad, uh, or it would cheapen their brand. And in fact, the opposite was true on Instagram, that when celebrities shared behind the scenes of their lives, they built this affinity with uh, their audience. And then you suddenly have this contingent of people who are are cheering for you and, and feeling for you and eventually buying your product, going to your movie, um, caring about what you what you want and, and your successes. So I think that that ended up really changing the way we think about celebrity. I'm speaking with Sarah Fryer, 
about her new book called No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. It's published by Simon & Schuster. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate, and the show is called Leonard Lopate at Large. Uh, Some people have uh, figured out how to monetize themselves through uh, Instagram uh, and, and become very wealthy, haven't they? It has become, yeah, it's become this place where uh, somebody's follower account almost equates to economic success. Um, and, and you have seen people who, you know, one, one of the couples I met in Brazil when I visited, they built an entire donut delivery business out of their apartment just via Instagram, just via sending, sending the donuts to whoever ordered them based on the images. And that's, that just, you know, makes it a lot cheaper. You don't have to have a storefront. You don't have to pay for a kitchen. Um, You can just do things through Instagram and the same works for media businesses or um, if you're a fitness instructor, you can just build it on Instagram without having to go through the usual gatekeepers. And that that is really freeing in a way for people, but also means that sometimes we're listening to people who are not vetted experts in anything, um, and that can also have, have downsides. Kim Kardashian West has 157 million followers. Uh, I'm, I'm not one of them, but uh, a lot of people obviously feel it necessary to follow her. She makes a million dollars for a single post. Where does that million dollars come from? And is she considered a celebrity, or is she something else? Is, uh, an, is she an influencer? Well, she's certainly a celebrity, an entrepreneur, an influencer, a personality, a reality star. I mean, that's the thing is if you're building a business on Instagram, you have to be all these things at once. You have to be not just a person but a brand. Um, And you are constantly curating and creating content and trying to really elevate your your image. And the the Kardashians have have been quite successful at this because – they are so willing to be vulnerable and, and show inside their lives. They get people invested in them. There are ambiguous advertisements, uh, like uh, the first major celebrity to sign up was the rapper Snoop Dogg, who posted a picture of himself holding a can of Colt 45. And I wonder whether he was paid to promote the drink and whether uh, uh, ambiguous uh, advertisements like that need to comply with rules against marketing alcohol to minors. There are a lot of, of instances of of ambiguous advertisements or, or fake advertisements on Instagram, ones where they're not telling you whether they're being paid by a brand to promote something. I think, I think that consumers have to be careful when they see a recommendation from an influencer in determining whether this is something that that is is really truly a good product. It, it, the influencers even use the product, um, and and I think that the regulations were very slow to come down. Um, now you're required to say it's an ad, um, but Instagram hasn't really cracked down on this because they know that a lot of people rely on that that veneer of of. Um, personal recommendation, and they don't want everything to look like an ad. Well, uh, there's a dog named Tuna. Its owner uh, scaled up from posting a few cute photos of the pet to be 
being able to quit her job and make a living managing his account full time. Um, how does that work? Do pet food companies run ads on Tuna's site? Do hotels and tourism well, boards pay travel influencers directly? They do. I mean, that's that's exactly how it works. It's, but it's not it's not like they're paying. There's no way to directly pay for an advertisement with an influencer. You just it's it's a untransparent behind the scenes arrangement where people will say, okay, well, we charge $5,000 a post uh, for the feed and we charge $2,000 a post for the Instagram story. We charge this much for a video and everyone's just kind of making it up as they go along. Um, And some people are, are undercompensated. Some people are definitely overcompensated, but again, it's, it's these brands deciding that it will be beneficial for them have a dog like tuna using their dog food or or um, going to their town uh, because that will that will then pay pay back and in prominence for that brand a study so it's hard identified to measure. hundreds of deaths during attempted selfies of that were being made for Instagram um, does Instagram Stop posting photos of anybody too close to a cliff to to prevent unnecessary risks. Yeah, that's that's one of the things they realize. I think I mentioned earlier that Instagram account is is an account that is managed by Instagram's community team, and it actually has more followers than any other entity on Instagram, more than Kim Kardashian. And that account is actually very careful about what. It posts because they know that they have the ability to make someone famous. They have the ability to start a trend. And so, yeah, they they try not to post photos of people too close to cliffs. They try not to post people who are, you know, doing anything too sexual, um, anything that would make somebody else feel bad money-wise. They have to be very careful about what they post because they know that it is supposed to reflect on what people should do. Still, the Royal Society for Public Health in the U.K. named Instagram as the worst app for mental health for young people. It is a it is a really hard place for young people because you have those metrics where you can essentially benchmark your success and relevance against other people, against um, friends, against um, strangers, and you can look at their lives and say, why isn't mine as interesting as that? Why isn't mine as beautiful as that? And the problem is that the people who are professionals on Instagram or who are strategic about Instagram maybe are curating it a, a little bit more than you are. They're using Facetune to to clear up their blemishes. They're they're using follower services to ensure that they always have comments on their posts, even if they don't have friends. Um, they're paying for that prominence. I mean. Some cases they are um, they are posting photos from things they did months ago, but they they just have the content coming. So I think that it's it's um, it's very hard when you're a young person you're trying to figure out your face your place in the world um, and what you should be doing in order to be interesting and and accepted in the world. And having Instagram as a place to so directly measure that is very hard. Why was Mark Zuckerberg eager to acquire Instagram in 2012? Uh, hadn't Systrom uh, just recently turned down an offer from Twitter? 
but then agree to uh, to the sale to, to Facebook? Facebook saw Instagram as a potential threat to its business because Instagram was doing well on mobile phones. And mobile phones were so clearly the future, and yet Facebook wasn't being able wasn't able to figure it out as quickly. And so they wanted to buy Instagram in order to ensure that they would have a leg in that market and that Instagram wouldn't grow up to to really compete with Facebook. They could cut a competitor out of the market, which is which is a the subject actually of the Federal Trade Commission lawsuit versus Facebook right now. Uh, the FTC is asking for the breakup of Facebook um, for them to spin off Instagram and WhatsApp because they think that these choices were anti-competitive. Well, the last week, over 40 state attorneys general and the U.S. government filed antitrust lawsuits against Facebook. Uh, they, but uh, isn't a company that tries to reduce competition by purchasing rivals in violation of antitrust laws? Or on the other hand, uh, when Microsoft was accused of limiting competition, wasn't that based on the compatibility of their operating systems with other companies? That, that's not the case here with Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, it's it is a, a complicated case because you have the the purchase of these apps that we're not really making money at the time, and so Facebook is arguing that that can't be um, anti-competitive because because they were not as prominent businesses as what Facebook has turned them into now, and of course they were allowed to go through at the time that they did. Um, the 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 difference is that Facebook saw. Uh, what's known as a network effect. They saw that if there are enough people joining an app or um, a platform, that there's really no reason for people to join a different one. And and that's the network effect. It just keeps growing and growing and growing um, at an accelerated rate because that's where people are joining. And so I think that the um, FTC is now looking at it differently and saying, okay, Facebook was was definitely trying to be anti-competitive by buying up these businesses, and furthermore, they are working to to find companies before they even get to that that point and try to hinder their success or, or crush them before they are able to. Um, and so, I think that the um, the there's just going to be a long protracted legal battle because <laughs> no one's really done an antitrust case against uh, a free app. Well, Facebook argues that if the government was going to object to the purchases of Instagram and WhatsApp, the appropriate time would have been when they were sold in 2012 and 2014. Uh, Why do you think the lawsuit is happening now? Is there a political side to the story uh, involving the Trump administration? There is this recognition now that that Facebook is not just a corporate entity that is making money off of advertising. They're also part of the infrastructure of our society. They have the potential to shape our elections, our information diet, our behavior um, with Instagram, our mental health. All of these things are in their power. And in that sense, I mean, this this is an important time to kind of keep that in check. So I think that it's, it is, there are some, Obviously, it dovetails with the um, 
government interest after the 2016 election. But this is a bipartisan issue. You are seeing um, Joe Biden speak out against Facebook just as much. And this is not going away. What's been the outcome of Facebook's antitrust-related legal battles with the European Union? Well, so far, Facebook is trying to lobby its way out of things. Um, they haven't really conceded anything. They haven't had to take, an, take any action. Like I said, I think that we're going to see a, a long slate of legal battles, of arguments, of governments continuing to come out and say, this, this can't be. Um, and it will take years to resolve. My guest on Leonard Lopez at Large today is Sarah Fryer, F-R-I-E-R. Her book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, published by Simon & Schuster. People take pictures of the summer Just in case someone thought they had missed it And to prove that it really existed Fathers take pictures of the mothers And the sisters take pictures of brothers Just to show that they love one another You can picture love that you took from me When we were young and the world was free Pictures of things as they used to be Don't show me no more please One billion dollars. That's a lot of money. Was that a record at the time? That was the most anyone had ever paid for a mobile application, yes. And and rather than just taking the money and moving on to a new venture, uh, Systrom and Krieger agreed to stay on and continue to run Instagram. Uh, Zuckerberg promised them independence within the larger organization. Uh, but uh, was this the first time that a tech company was purchased with the intent not to be integrated? It was. It really set a precedent for the future. I mean, you you have some rare examples like like Google's acquisition of YouTube, perhaps. But but Instagram was the first that the founders really stayed on. They they maintained this sense of being a company within a company. They eventually got the CEO title um, and CTO title, uh, and and were describing themselves essentially as having a business where Mark Zuckerberg was a board member more than a boss. That wasn't exactly true, but what it did is it allowed Facebook to uh, to make the case to WhatsApp, another important acquisition in 2014, that they could join Facebook and remain independent. And that's why WhatsApp chose Facebook over Google. And he bought WhatsApp for $19 billion. I wonder whether Systrom and Krieger started thinking that maybe they had sold too soon. I I do think that that's something that they are asked often, um, but I think that they were an experiment. That was the first time Facebook had ever tried anything like that. And once Zuckerberg saw that it that it worked, then he tried to repeat the process. At the time of the acquisition, Instagram had about 13 employees compared to Facebook's 3,000 employees. Uh, did, the, did the Instagram employees profit from the sale? And did they all become Facebook employees? 
Well, they did all become Facebook employees, but unfortunately for most of them, they just got a small salary bump. And it was really devastating because for them, they were getting all these messages from their friends and family saying, oh, my God, you're millionaires now. Uh, and for the most part, they were not. And um, and that is that is rough. And I mean, I know we sh- we not everyone has a, as cool a job as that. There are many things they can be grateful for. But when you're in Silicon Valley and you are betting on your career, betting your career on a startup, you're agreeing to take a lower salary to work there. You're working nights and weekends. You are exhausted, and having that kind of a uh, it's called an exit, the billion dollar sale. It is the the prize you've been waiting for, and yet um, all they got were some some raises in, in many cases. Should I also assume that there was a clash in corporate cultures between Facebook and Instagram? Absolutely. I mean, Instagram really cared about culture. They really cared about um, setting a a tone on their app, reaching out to the biggest users, and um, determining how they can uh, make these make the right people more prominent. Facebook thought that that kind of individual attention was a waste of time. They thought that the more important thing was to focus on problems that would that would affect tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people um, via new product updates. And they also had a a very uh, spammy approach to getting people to engage with the app. They would send constant notifications and emails to their users because what was most important was that people clicked to open Facebook. The more time you spent, the more you were on the app, the more Facebook felt like you loved it. So um, those different philosophies were certainly at odds. And um, eventually when, when Instagram started to win out despite its different strategies, uh, Facebook was threatened by their success. Even though uh, it was pretty large, why is Zuckerberg so focused on, on growth? Isn't Facebook large enough? Well, I think if you are in a dominant mindset of Zuckerberg, you always feel like the underdog. I don't think that Zuckerberg will ever stop wanting Facebook to be bigger. Um, He thinks that the bigger the network, the better. And that is part of why he is combining Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Messenger behind the scenes so he can build an even larger a connection between people in the world, more than 3 billion people using Facebook's products. And that's also why uh, he was concerned that not enough people even have access to the Internet. Facebook has uh, the vast majority of the world's Internet-connected population using one of its products, and there simply aren't enough Internet-connected people to keep that going. Was it surprising that Systrom and Krieger lasted six years working with Facebook? What led to their decision finally to leave in 2018? It's it very unusual. I think it goes to the fact that they they were promised independence. Um, and Systrom thought that that would be sustainable for as long as um, he did the things that Facebook cared about the most. As long as he crushed the competition, as long as he... Um, 
kept Instagram growing, then maybe Facebook would leave them alone and, and let them do their thing. And maybe even one day he might end up being the CEO of Facebook or something. Um, some people, some people theorize that that would be the case. However, once Instagram got to, um, to even higher prominence, their revenues were growing. They were on track to 1 billion users. Zuckerberg started to get worried that people would leave leave Facebook for Instagram, that they would choose Instagram over the parent company. And that he thought would be a, a threat to his legacy and Facebook's future, the social network's future. And so he started to restrict resources for Instagram, um, not letting them hire as much, not letting them have links from Facebook to Instagram. Uh, and it really became difficult for the Instagram founders, Mike Krieger and Kevin Systrom, to do their jobs in the way they wanted to do them. They felt like instead of CEO and CTO, they were product heads for a division of Facebook and not working for Instagram as much as they were working for whatever Zuckerberg wanted. Didn't Systrom fly to the Vatican to help Pope Francis set up an Instagram account? In 2016. That's exactly what is the Pope? That's exactly the kind of thing that Instagram would do. That Facebook would kind of roll its eyes at. Um, but yeah, I mean, they they went to the Vatican. Um, Sister and presented the Pope with a book full of images from Instagram that highlighted issues that he cared about, like climate change and the refugee crisis. And the Pope made his first Instagram post uh, in a big public showing, and and it was immediately a success. What are people saying? Uh, we have very little time left, but what are people saying about the uh, the uh, the case against uh, uh, Facebook and uh, uh, that the the, uh, the current administration has uh, has instituted? Do you think that it will continue under Biden, and uh, that we might have a long drawn out battle? I think that we will have a long drawn out battle. I, I absolutely think that, and um, it's the Democrats in Congress that are are holding up the mantle on a lot of the antitrust considerations. Um, they put out a 500 page report on some of the issues that they see, and so I think that that we will see this as just a constant problem for the company, including in Europe, and. Um, you, there are so many different facets of the issue. It's, it's the, the data collection. It's the um, control over our information. It's the um, lack of choice for small businesses that are advertising. It's all of these things that are coming together um, and it's just be turning into a reckoning for Facebook's power. Unfortunately, we have to end it here, Sarah. Uh, congratulations again on winning the Financial Times Business Book of the Year Award for 2020. The book, No Filter, the inside story of Instagram published uh, by Simon and Schuster. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And my apologies for all the technical difficulties. Uh, anyway, that brings us to the end <laughs> of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman, who prepared today's interview. If you've just discovered this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep-dive interviews, especially the ones that aren't all messed up, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you'll find links to all of our past shows at our website, underlocatedlarge.com. 
If you'd like to send me a comment about any of our shows, just want to say hello, or offer your uh, condolences, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off, I'd like to ask you uh, to step up and support Leonard Lopate at Large on the historic public radio station that brings it to you from 1 to 2 p.m., the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% sponsored. If you value, value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews we bring you on the show, please go right now. Give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help ensure that we can keep the show coming to you. And the best way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running show their support for what we do on this show. And anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, No Filter, the inside story how, uh, of how Instagram transformed business celebrity and our culture by my guest, Sarah Fryer. But please be sure to make that uh, tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org. And we hope you'll join us tomorrow when investigative journalist and regular contributor to the show, Bob Henley, will be here. We'll see you then.